That's like the first time anyone's ever said that to me getting ready to do a live stream. I'm running late because there's a mountain lion outside my house. That's a totally legit reason. I'll like <laughs> let it let that slide. A lot of you have been watching our big journey moving from Connecticut to Pennsylvania for the entire time that we have been living this exciting trip, uh, moving homesteads. So a lot of you will remember that there was a time when my family and I lived in a tiny house. Oh, you Yurt? Or nerd. <laughs> well, you should say we're tiny home. That would have worked perfect. I liked a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Which one will it be? Yurt, tiny home? Now, it might not fit the strict definition of a tiny house. Some people who want to be really strict about that definition would say 500 square feet or less, somewhere around there. We figured the tiny house definition really applied to how much square feet per person. Because if you're one person in 500 square feet versus six people in a thousand, we figured we could count ourselves in in the club somewhere, uh, rounding up or rounding down. We are moving homesteads to a homestead in Pennsylvania. We're moving to a much bigger house than the one we're currently living in. However, for about six months, my family is going to have to live in a tiny home. We have a thousand square feet to work with up above a garage. And so for the last couple days, I have been putting together designs. We come in the front doors. You notice this one when you walk through, it's a little bit more open. There's not walls on both sides. We got the living room space television you can sit watch enjoy you know relaxing then you have your little kitchenette with the eat-in area we walk back on the first door there would be the bathroom and then forget we spend about nine months in a thousand square feet six of us at the time four loud rambunctious children human beings running around and all of that was actually pretty pleasant through the summer and through the fall and then winter came Winter here in Pennsylvania, especially the last couple of years, has not been terrible. I can't complain. We haven't got two, three, four feet of snow. Honestly, I don't know if we even got one feet of snow. But we have our cold days, and the kids certainly spend a lot more time inside. Cabin fever is a real thing, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like anyone saying this is like well a PSA. <laughs> if you or someone you love is suffering from cabin fever, go outside. That's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. And over the long winter, what it felt like in the tiny house, uh, I learned that I myself am not a huge fan of tiny homes or tiny living. I edit videos and podcasts for a living. I like my quiet workspaces. And there's not a lot of quiet when you cram six individuals into a thousand square feet, especially when four of them are being homeschooled and have a lot more energy in the winter than in the summer when they were outside playing. I was more than happy to leave our tiny home. Once our larger house was empty on the property. I could not move out quick enough, get myself an office with a quiet workspace where I could edit the podcast in peace. But that was not the unanimous feeling of the family. Kay longs for the tiny house again. Now that we're in the big house, 
The kids are, they have their play space downstairs. We have different bedrooms. It's really wonderful. It's nice for a large family to have plenty of space. But Kay finds herself looking back on those simpler times when she had less to take care of, less to keep up, less messes for the kids to even make because there was less space for a mess to be made in. And she talks about in the future when it's just me and her and all these little human beings are out doing hopefully their own homesteading adventure somewhere. She talks about going back to tiny living. If we didn't have to, we would not choose to live six humans in a thousand square feet. And that's why we moved out of this place. I'm, I'm torn on this. I really enjoyed the size of this. There were things you liked. I liked it a lot. Our last night, you were like, oh, I think I'm going to miss this little place. Why? What did you like most about it? You were this? like, I won't. I'm like, I'll see you later. I'm going to the dark house right now. I loved how easy it was to keep everything clean. I like that. I like our family being so close together most of the time. <laughs> I like everybody being in the, our bedroom at night, you know, talking to everybody, reading our story. I did like that, goodnight. yeah. There's really nice closeness to it. And while I'm enjoying having our space now, the larger space we're in, someone tells me when it's just the two of us and I have a little more quiet, I might enjoy it a little bit more. If you're at all interested in tiny living, like Kay is, she's, she's got the plan. We're going to be empty nesters in a small empty nest on a mountain somewhere in western Pennsylvania, probably. Uh, if that sounds like a nice place for you to set up a small little nest somewhere, then you're going to really enjoy tonight's interview. We're going to be interviewing Ariel, who lives in a tiny home out in the wilderness. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop. 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911, and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to my channel. This is the home of Fineith, my tiny house where I live off-grid in the western mountains. Fineith is Welsh for my nest. My house is about 170 square feet, not counting the loft. It's on a trailer on wheels. live here full-time year-round. Off-grid is in not having any physical connection to any public utilities. I get my electricity from solar panels with a generator as backup. I heat my house with wood and also have a propane heater if I need a backup for that. I've got a propane stove and oven and water heater as well. I carry all the water that I use in my house from a neighboring well because my climate is too cold to allow much of any other kind of water system. 
I get to live in a pretty amazing spot. I'm a little over 6,000 feet above sea level and elevation, so it does come with some often challenging weather, quick weather changes, lots of snow, and sometimes even more than that. I try to always share the real side of things. This life is not all rainbows and roses, but I do love it. I love living here, and I try to help others learn from my experiences with what works, what doesn't, uh, things I'm trying, things that didn't go so well, my favorite parts, and just all the ups and downs of daily life. I figured that would be a perfect introduction so you can picture this beautiful little tiny home in the beautiful wilderness uh, where Ariel lives as uh, we listen to some uh, what I'm expecting to be incredible stories because of what Ariel said the minute she logged on. Ariel, why don't you tell the audience what you said to me as soon as the webcam opened up? Well, I was running late to uh, get here to be in front of my camera for the interview because my dog and I were out tracking a mountain lion that walked in front of our house. Not for any particular reason. We don't need to or anything. It's just interesting to see where they go. And I kind of like knowing where things like that are generally when they come by. Not that they couldn't come back by by surprise, but I like to be generally aware of where in the vicinity something like a mountain lion's hanging out. So that's why I was running late. You keep your friends close and your mountain lions closer, I guess, right? Out in the <laughs> off-grid life. So Ariel, just beautiful picturesque scene that we saw in the beginning. Where is this? Tell us a little bit about your little tiny house and where you live. So I live in the mountains of Western Wyoming. I've found that most people, I actually grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, where most of my friends still don't know that Wyoming exists. It's that gigantic chunk of land between Colorado and Montana, if you don't know where it is, because I still have people to this day say, we can't remember, do you live in Colorado or is it Montana? So the, the large chunk in between, that's where I live. And a lot of the state is high, dry, windy desert. Like if you've ever happened to be unlucky enough to need to drive Interstate 80 across the bottom edge of the state, it's kind of ugly. Um, but the mountains are really gorgeous and that is where I live. And I'm in my tiny house here. It is on wheels, though you can't really, well, you can't tell that at all right now because the snow completely buries the bottom half of the house. But it's about 160 square feet and kind of as you were saying square footage per person it's just me and my dog here so that is all space for me i did the math beforehand and i realized that we pretty much have the similar square footage per person as ariel so i was looking forward to hearing her much what is guaranteed going to be a much more positive outlook on tiny living that's why she's here <laughs> so ariel uh you mentioned you grew up in pennsylvania tell us a little bit about that childhood well, I grew up in Lancaster County, um, which is, of course, generally known as Amish country or else Amish tourist country, at least. My family was not Amish, uh, though I did grow up in a very conservative uh, home. My parents are more brethren, so they looked plain as well. We had cars and, and lights, not horse and buggies, but I did grow up in a pretty conservative home. And I was homeschooled, as were all six of my younger siblings. So I got to learn to do a lot of useful things when I was fairly young, whether I wanted to or not being the oldest because there we, we grew the majority of our own food and sewed our own clothing and there's always cooking to do and my mom was doing most of the school teaching so I did a lot of the other housework stuff and so um, I, got, I got to learn a lot of things at a pretty young age um, which I don't regret now I wasn't always thankful for that at the time and I lived there uh, till I was 
20, I guess I had just turned 20 and a couple of years before, actually a good friend and I had done a road trip all over the mountain, well, all over the West, not just the mountain West, put like 10,000 miles on my car, saw a lot of scenery and I, um, I, I've always enjoyed skiing. So my job at the time was mostly to do with summer stuff, greenhouses and produce and so on. And so my boss said she didn't mind if I'd, you know, go work at a resort somewhere in the West for the winter, as long as I promised I would be back in the spring. So I said, sure, of course, I'm not planning to move. And I sent in applications to every major ski resort around the West. And one here in Wyoming was the first one to reply with the job offer. So I came here and by the time I left that spring I bumped into another job I wanted to do I knew I had fallen in love with the area and so I went home and said I'm here because I promised I'd be back and I'm moving this summer and I won't <laughs> be back and I've been in Wyoming ever since I have to I have to know because I was, I was thinking about um, you know being a father what did your family think when you told them, I'm going to move out west and I'm going to live in a tiny home in the wilderness? Well, so that was kind of in two steps. When I first moved west was not when I moved into a, my tiny house. So that came later. Um, I'm not sure I've ever asked them that. I, I think that it was, I think my family knew at that point that I was fairly independent and did not always do the maybe the normal American things. Of course, in a lot of ways, my family was not doing the normal American life in the first place. So uh, if they thought I was crazy, nobody told me that, but I didn't ask either. That's probably a safe rule of thumb for most of us homesteaders, don't ask. <laughs> so you headed out west, um, very, Especially, I, I don't know, the Pennsylvania that you grew up in. I'm new to Pennsylvania. We've only been here a year. Um, but okay. very different from uh, as far as climate goes, scenery goes. Was it a big change moving out west to the mountains? Yes. Um, even culturally, since I had spent the majority of my life in some kind of plain community. So even if I had just done something different in Pennsylvania, that could have been different. But there's not many plain folks, and, and I am not any longer myself, but there's not many, uh, you know, Amish Mennonite brethren groups in Wyoming. I'm not sure there's any actually. Um, so there's that. And then yes, the scenery is different. My short answer when people say, well, why did you move to Wyoming is that there's more open spaces, bigger mountains and less people. By state population is the least populated state in the union. We have just over half a million people in, in the whole state, which is several times the size of most other states. So there's a lot of open spaces. Um, some of it, like I mentioned, if you go through it, you'll understand why it's open space because nobody wants to live at a windy, cold desert that's 6,000, 7,000 feet above sea level. But um, some areas like the mountains are, are really spectacular. And yes, very, very different. We have winter, um, we had winter in Pennsylvania, but even as I was getting older, there didn't seem to be as much snow as when I was younger. Uh, here, I have usually can count on there being snow on the ground at least eight months a year, sometimes more than that. And that's a solid snowpack. Um, we get frost year round. Last, last spring, the last snow was on June 21st, which is the first day of summer. Um, the first one was sometime the next month oh, um, man. You know, to start the next year. So yes, yeah, so a very different climate. 
some of the pictures, and uh, we're, we're pulling them up for everybody to see here. Some of the pictures of your tiny home surrounded by the snow banks is pretty incredible. How do you stay warm in this small little space with 450 inches of snow uh, out averaged a year outside of that little tiny home for eight months out of the year? That's one of the most frequent questions I get, and it's actually super easy. If anybody's ever been in a very small space, the smaller it is, generally the easier it is to keep warm um, because there's just not that many square feet of air that you're trying to heat. And when the snow is deep, snow does actually provide a good bit of insulation as well. Um, and my house is is also well insulated. And just right over here where you can't quite see it is my little wood stove blazing away. And it's, it's only 12 inches square on the outside and the firewood that goes in it. This would be a very big chunk that's oh, uh, wow. you know, smaller than most people's kindling. But it burns that and, and keeps us toasted here the house could easily be 90 degrees i spend most of the winter with at least one or two windows open a crack um just for you know ventilation and fresh air because wood heat is not not finely controlled like with a the thermostat it it makes things very very warm so staying warm inside is just really not a problem even though people always think it will be by looking at how cold and snowy it looks <laughs> like outdoors one of the things that we want to talk about tonight, Ariel, is actually homestead life, living off of the land. And, you know, the, the more snow, the more cold we have, it would seem the harder that is. Are you able to grow throughout much of the season? How do you grow your own food? How do you get your own food off of the, the cold eight months of winter out there? So that definitely makes growing a lot of things more challenging. Also complicating factors is I happened at my house happens to be parked on the north side of a hill, which if you live anywhere northern, you know that is exactly where you do not want to be. You would like some southern exposure. Now I can't complain at all. I don't own the land I'm currently parked on. I know I won't be here forever, though I have been here for six years and it's been pretty awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm not complaining about that, but were I somewhere south facing, there would be some slightly different options, even being equally cold, but with a little more sunshine, but I'm not. So uh, yeah, growing things, even in the summer, uh, we're in like a growing zone three, but what a lot of people aren't aware is the growing zone just says what the coldest temperature is that will like kill your apple tree, for example. Um, so, but what a growing zone does not tell you is how much of the year it's that temperature. So there are other, I have friends who live in other zone threes that say, well, I can grow this and I can grow that. And it's like, yeah, you get to your coldest is minus 40 or whatever. And it does that one or two days a year. Um, I get frost and I tend to call it frost now if it's not like frozen rock solid down four feet but i get hard freezes actually all summer long um a lot of summer nights will be 26 25 something like that at night and so that does make growing things challenging i have a pretty good sized garden anyway and i just focus on growing the things that can freeze so if you've heard people talk about what you should grow in your winter garden that's basically what I do in my summer garden. I grow all the leafy greens, um, all the brassica family stuff, all of the root cup crops like beets and carrots and potatoes. And sometimes it's warm enough to grow a green bean or a zucchini, but not always. So I grow as much as I can. A lot of those root crops, of course, store fairly well. So I can use them through 
some good portion of the year. Just the other night I ate the very last of my carrots that were fresh. I also like canning and dehydrating, so I have a bunch of pickled carrots still that I can eat and and so on. And then in the, in the winter, my one thing I do indoors is I do a lot of sprouting, so growing like alfalfa, broccoli, um, and uh, clover sprouts um, because I can grow them quickly in a windowsill. So I eat a lot of sprouts as my fresh greens in the winter because I can grow them. And then of course I do still go to the grocery store because I am not able to produce 100% of the, the veggies that I want to eat here. I try to produce as much as possible. Then on the meat side, I happen to live in an area with pretty spectacular hunting, which I don't, I can't actually say I enjoy, but a neighbor and I work together every year to put two elk in the freezer um, from, from the hunting to all the processing and packaging. We do that ourselves. And again, that's not my favorite chore, but it does provide pretty much all of the, you know, free range um, pastured grass fed meat I could eat in a whole year. So I value that. How much meat do you get off of one elk? Any idea? Uh, once you're done and everything's packaged up and you've just got like steak and burger, not not the bone and all the rest of it, um, depends a little bit how big it is. Somewhere between like 120 to, we had a pretty big bowl this last year, which is not our first choice. I think we ended up with like 180 pounds of meat by the time we were done wow. with that. So that's a good bit if you've ever like processed a, a white-tailed deer or something. They're a oh, lot yeah. larger. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's quite a different animal. Um when you think about it, it's interesting. When you put a value to it, what you described it as, we have grass-fed, wild, organic, free-range. And I get the question from time to time because we do a lot of chan- uh, hunting on the channel here. People say, well, how do you know it's organic, the animals, where they're living, especially out where you are? I'm sure there's no uh, there's no uh, GMO corn or soy anywhere on the mountain where you're at. Is that the case? No, you can't even grow corn or soy here. So, yeah, I, I do... They could certainly get in somebody's yard that was sprayed and eat some grass or something. But for the most part, uh, there's not a whole lot of yards in the first place. And um, yeah, there's no, there's none of that kind of agriculture. So I know they're not, you know, wild, but corn fed, like yeah. deer would be in some areas yeah. and so on. And so you put a value, I mean, you just said, imagine a hundred, just for simple math, 175 pounds. Let's say you did really good. You got 200 for some simple math here. You go down to the farmer's market, you're going to pay for just basic sausage around where we live, $10 a pound. So you're talking $2,000 worth of meat that you're able to put up. Uh, and how long can you live uh, meat-wise? Can a one, one elk last you a whole year, Ariel? Pretty much. I don't quite eat solely that because I, I like some variety. So I do occasionally buy some poultry since unfortunately I don't seem to be able to raise my own. I've got way too many big predators. I'd have to pretty much build a concrete bunker if I wanted to keep a chicken alive here. So I occasionally buy some poultry or, uh, again, fishing's not my thing, but I have friends who like to fish more than they like to eat the fish. So I've got some fish as well. So I'm not eating purely elk every day all year, but yes, usually by the time hunting season rolls around, we're, you know, finishing up the last pack or two of meat out of the freezer. So it's all the red meat. I, I never buy beef at this point or lamb or anything like that. It's, it's all of that that I consume in a year. Plus my dog, um, he's actually always been raw fed. So we're using the whole, whole entire elk nose to tail because I package up all the parts that are not human consumable, whether it's some of the organs or ears or hooves or ribs or stuff like that. And he actually eats every single bit of it that I don't eat. Now you mentioned it's hard to have chickens because you have so many 
large predators. When we think about a large predator in Pennsylvania, we do have we do have some black bears, and there are some out there. Uh, but we saw in your your introduction video there, there's a few bigger ones. Is it scary to live in this remote area where you're surrounded by bears, wolves, even moose, which can be dangerous? I I don't find it. So I would say. I, I approach large wildlife kind of like I would approach semis going down the interstate if I'm walking on the shoulder. Most semis don't get up with the intention of like killing a person that day, but you also have to be aware they are way bigger than you and going way faster than you. If you step in front of them, you will be killed. That's just, you know, how the, the physics is going to work out there. And a lot of big wildlife are kind of like that. They don't you know, it's a very rare instance where some big carnivore would uh, develop a taste for actually hunting people. Um, so you just have to be aware. And I've got, it's funny, I have a friend here who just would be absolutely paranoid to ever even like visit a large city because that's so scary. There's like drive-by shootings and people kill each other all the time and so on. And then I have friends who are in cities who would say, I could never sleep at night knowing a bear might walk by my house. But I think they're they're kind of the same thing you get comfortable with and um and are more aware of the dangers that you're around and that you deal with like uh, you know friends in urban settings said oh yeah i have my like urban creep sense out if i'm walking somewhere at night to you know be aware of anything wrong i have my wildlife sense out <laughs> all of the time and there's just things you you do like if if i need to walk outside at night or if my dog does or whatever um nobody goes out the door till i take my floodlight and like sweep our whole little clearing and be sure that we're not going to like step out the door and straight into a moose or something like that and i've got little uh, motion detector lights out there as well so that helps because they kick on if something walks by so just hopefully we don't startle each other so no i don't find it scary but you also do have to be aware that those dangers, or potential dangers anyway, are around and, and not be stupid. No matter where you are, there's going to be dangers, right? If you go live in the wilderness, there's going to be dangers. If you go live in the city, there's going to be dangers. If you live around semis, there's going to be dangers. So <laughs> uh, not letting that hold you back um, is, you know, allowing you to live this, this homesteading life all by yourself in this tiny home. Uh, what is it like homesteading as a single woman by herself in the wilderness? I, I think it's great. There's a lot of things I love doing. And I, I guess in some ways, I think I probably have an easier time doing it because I'm not trying to uh, relate to a spouse or deal with children or any of that at the same time I can just do whatever I want if I make a decision I don't really have to consult anybody else's opinion so that simplifies some things um, but on the other hand nobody can really do every single thing by themselves and I do have good friends in the area like I said a neighbor and I work together on on the you know hunting and meat processing um, I go help other people with firewood and, and they help me with some things. I do some cooking for one of my neighbors and I do all my snow shoveling around here, but for the lane to actually get out, he brings his you know giant tractor snow blower over and clears that. Otherwise I'd be snowshoeing to my car every day, not driving to my house in the winter. There's a lot of things I do myself, but I wouldn't want to give anybody the impression that I you know have like dropped into a wilderness somewhere and have no human contact and, and forged my own steel from metal that I mine. Like, <laughs> I, I do have interactions with other humans as well so i'm not completely solo in that way <laughs> i think that's a 
a very big, I don't know, misconception to people who are first getting into self-sufficiency and first getting into homesteading that the goal is I'm going to become 100% self-sufficient. I think you spend any amount of time, whether doing it like you're doing it in the wilderness, in a tiny home, by yourself in the tiny home, or like we're doing it, which is, you know, a big family on a hill with lots of family around, no matter what way you homestead, you realize you you can't do it all yourself. Nobody ever could. And, uh, you know, if you read, we always talk about, we read the Little House in the Prairie series with our kids. And we've been going through this over the last few years. We've been reading these different books. And you always read throughout these books, no matter where they are, if they're out west in the prairie, uh, if they're out in the big woods of Wisconsin, wherever they had moved to, they always very quickly formed, a, even if it was small, a community. There was neighbors, there were friends, uh, there was family who would visit. And those friends and those family at times showed up and saved their life. At times they were there uh, when things really went wrong. Now, in our modern time, we still have modern communication. It's a little bit easier to let somebody know if you need a hand. But I think it's still important, no matter what stage of homesteading you go into, not to say, hey, can I do this 100% on my own? But like you talked about, just finding your finding a local community. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. What do you think is the best part for you living this lifestyle Ariel what's your favorite what's your favorite thing about it I would say freedom and that encompasses many many aspects of life um, because some people say, oh, you live such a simple life. That's awesome. And in a lot of ways I do, but some things are actually more complicated. My house isn't just warm because there's a thermostat set at 70 degrees and I don't have to think about it. My house is warm if I cut up a tree, split it up, carry it inside and continually put it in my stove. Um, now I really enjoy that. I actually really like splitting firewood. Some of those simple things 
do require some work, um, though it's nice I don't have any, you know, utility bill or anything to uh, pay. So that actually gives me a lot of financial freedom because my overall bills are so low. I do, you know, I own my house. I do work for the landowners um, in exchange for being able to park here, but I don't, um, that, that's not a monetary exchange and with no utilities and such, of course, there's always gonna be some stuff you need to have cash for, but my overall bills are very, very low. So that gives me a lot of freedom to do jobs I enjoy that are more flexible, more part-time, more seasonal. And all of that gives me a lot of freedom to go track down wildlife that walk by my house that day or something else, because most of those things are not on a set schedule that has to happen. I don't have to be somewhere at 7.30 a.m. to report to a boss, you know, on Monday morning kind of thing. So it gives me financial freedom, which then gives me time freedom. Um, and you, of course, still have to get things done because, you know, sure, your firewood doesn't need split at 7.30 a.m., but if it's never split, then you're going to freeze when it's minus 25 degrees outside. So um, there, there's a lot of flexibility, but I think that's overall the thing I like most. I really enjoy the variety. I like all the different things I do. Um, maybe I just get bored and fidgety easily. I'm not even very good at sitting still in a chair most of the time. I do a lot of work sitting on the floor, laying on the floor, laying on the couch or things like that. And I think in my whole life, I feel like that I like that. Oh, there's a few weeks here where I spent a lot of time splitting firewood, but then I'm not gonna do that again for a year. Then there's a lot of gardening stuff that gets crammed into the few weeks of summer. And that's great, but then it's gonna be many, many months before I garden again and so on. I, I like the kind of seasonal rhythms of things and, and the variety and the freedom that most of the time I can say, oh, I was gonna do that, but look, there's a really cool bird outside. Let's photograph that first because it's there right now and I can. So I, I think that for me is has been the biggest benefit of, of moving into a tiny house. I think some people look at what I'm doing now and it's I, there's still things I do that are not my favorite thing in life it's not like if you buy a tiny house your whole life will be like roses and rainbows um, that designing thing does take some time if you want to do something totally different than what you're doing it's probably not just gonna happen tomorrow morning people look at what I'm doing now and I'm here now but I've been here working at making it work this way for six years since moving into my tiny house. And there were things I did before that when I had never even thought about a tiny house that worked toward making this kind of thing possible with the decisions about you know, not taking on debt for different things and so on. So that was a whole long process. And, and I just always wanna be cautious that nobody looks at like, oh, you just got to sleep in, put wood in your stove, have a cup of tea and go walk in the woods. I wanna do that depending where you are right now, that's not going to happen for you tomorrow morning necessarily. That's a process of making decisions and working towards things. And it was for me too. It didn't happen the next morning for me either. Such a good um, point. And I just want people to not get discouraged thinking all oh, these people out there who make videos or post photos, they have these perfect lives and mine sucks. Yeah. Nobody has a perfect life. We all have things that suck and, um, and anything you know, anything worth having or that you value, whatever it is, and however different it is from the things that I care about, is probably going to take some serious time and effort. And even, I would say, you know, some sacrifices to get there. I, most of the things I've sacrificed, I don't feel like I cared about that much. So I didn't really sacrifice having an expensive car so I could work less and have more time to go walk in the woods. But I don't have an expensive car. And for some people, that would be a big deal. Yeah. So I just I don't want people to get discouraged with like, 
oh, all these YouTubers or whatever have awesome <laughs> lives and, and mine's just miserable and I'll never be like that. You, I'm sure you get the comments. Yeah, and a lot of, because th those things did start before, I think people look at, oh, you're doing something cool and fun now. They don't see the, before I made videos, because I didn't have time to make videos, because making videos had never crossed my radar, that I was working four jobs and 100 hours a week and only sleeping four hours a night. And that that is part of what is making this possible now. And I, I guess I struggle with that because I want to share like the, the realistic side of things. Um, but you can't ever get everything into one post or yeah. one video. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I think the whole, the whole fun part of the internet and the social connections it can build can also sometimes be really discouraging if you're looking at where somebody else is and they've been working at something for many years and you're just starting today it can feel like an impossible mountain to climb that you're never going to get there yeah. um but they didn't get there in one day either yeah that's such a good point is this life right is it a right fit for everyone no, I don't think there's any such thing as any life that's a, that's a right fit for everyone. People are way too different. And even, you know, climates are way too different and um, so on for anything to be perfect for everyone. And I do write about and blog about and uh, make videos about, you know, life here. But my goal is never to try to convince you to live just like me, but to show people what I'm doing and what works and what doesn't and so on. Um, to hopefully, you know, if you are trying to do the exact same thing in one aspect of life, uh, maybe you can learn from my mistakes. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think everyone needs to or should live in a house this size. I have some good friends who are actually a couple and their house is smaller than mine and there's two of them in it. Um, but I think I would encourage everyone to think about how much house do you want? How much time do you want to spend cleaning and maintaining it? If you want a mansion and you've got the money and you want to spend your life taking care of a house, go for it. I think that's a little crazy. I'd rather go wander around the woods on snowshoes with my dog and only have to clean for a few minutes every month. You know, I would just encourage people to stop and think out what what is most important to them. You know, what do you want in life? Don't just get a new job, get a, you know, climb a, a career ladder, um, buy a bigger house because you can and because that's what everybody does. Because I think I've found so much freedom in life by actually thinking out what do I want to do, which is not the same as everybody. And, and working toward arranging things so that I can do more of what I care about in life. And that's probably not going to be the same thing as what you care about in life, but I would encourage everyone to do that kind of process. Stop and think, oh, what do you care about? What, what do you want to do? What do you want to be able to do? What do you want to have time for, energy for, money for, whatever? And then try to figure out whether it's completely different than what I'm doing, what would you need to do to arrange your life to make more of what you care about possible? So that aspect I think would be, um, applicable to everyone's life, but specifically living somewhere super cold and snowy in a tiny house with a wood stove, that is probably not everybody's thing, <laughs> thankfully. There's so many good takeaways, even if you're never gonna live in a tiny home, or even if you're never gonna live off grid, that lifestyle design, thinking about what you really want and making sure your life is, even if it takes time, what you really want. That was an awesome takeaway. And uh, just seeing that uh, 
not letting things that, that might scare you, things that might scare us like wild animals or being all by yourself in this tiny home uh, stop you from leading a life that's obviously one you really are passionate about and you really enjoy. So thank you so much for sharing this story with us. Ariel, if people have been hooked, if they want to see more, if they want to learn more, where do they go to follow your story? Where can they find you on the internet? Um, if they want updates every day, I've been most active on uh, MeWe, the social media site that if you haven't heard of it, it basically works just like Facebook, except there's no ads and there's no algorithms. So you actually get to see things in order, which makes it a lot of fun. So I usually post something about what we're doing almost every single day there. Um, there are 550 something videos on my YouTube channel uh, covering kind of all aspects of you get to just see what I do here because that's what I do. So whether it has something to do with being in a tiny house or being off grid or gardening or the wildlife around us or um, shoveling snow or whatever, that's that's all covered there. Uh, and then my blog, um, fineth.blogspot.com has posts fairly regularly on, on again, topics of kind of whatever I'm doing and anywhere you look for me um fineness is my house's name it's it's welsh for my nest that's f y a separate word n y t h so if you look for that anywhere it probably it will be me that comes up because i think i'm the only one using that name so you can pretty much find me anywhere under that so definitely go and check out ariel's uh, youtube channel me and my daughter were paging through and watching videos and i really like the sprinkling of the wildlife videos in there that was fantastic there's some wildlife right there <laughs> that's my team life <laughs> uh, so go, sleeping on my feet making them hot we'll have links in the description below and uh that way you can go and check out everything ariel's doing and follow along in her story if you've joined us live and added questions thank you so much for being here live thank you for throwing in some good questions for Ariel. And if you're looking forward to next week, every Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern time, we have a live show with the Homesteady Pioneers. Next week's show, I believe, is about, for those of you who are running a farm business, getting press for your farm business. So how to get your farm in the news, how to get your products known to your local community. If you're starting up some small-scale agriculture and you want to sell a bunch of bacon or a bunch of farm fresh chickens how do you let people know about it how do you get in the newspaper how do you get in magazines we have someone who loves homesteading and uh, comes from a homesteading life and background but who also specializes in working with media and also knowing when to not work with media because sometimes it is best to just be off the grid right ariel <laughs> so we're sometimes right so we're going to shut this one down thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next week as we talk about getting more eyes on your homestead, if that's what you want. The interview you just heard was actually only half of the entire interview. If you'd like to gain access to our extended full-length versions, and as we mentioned at the end there, join us live and ask questions with our guests, we do the Homesteady Live from the Barn show every single week with the Homesteady Pioneers on Monday nights, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join us for those and watch all of the extended uncut versions in the pioneer library click the link in the description below to become a homesteady pioneer you can become a pioneer for as little as five dollars a month and you get access to all our members only content